All right, I want to welcome you this morning. We're glad that you're here. Uh, some of you are visiting with us for the first time. I want to invite you to this little welcome table on the way out afterwards. Uh, there'll be somebody there to greet you with some information about who we are as a church. Uh, we are... Um, we celebrate the other churches in our community, and we recognize that churches are different, and they connect to different people in different places and different places in their journey. So we don't try and communicate that we're the best church in town because we're just a different church in town. Uh, we feel really blessed in where we are as a church family, um, but we don't feel like we've arrived, and we don't feel like we're better than any, any other church in our community. So um, just hear that. The spirit of why, why I'm sharing that is because I want you to recognize that we cheer for other churches. And this may be your only visit with us, with us this morning. And if it is, we want you to know that we're cheering for you where you land. But want to encourage you, if this is our one visit with, your one visit with us, to encourage you to land. Man, land. Being part of a church family is so, so important and so meaningful. I mean, it, it is life. It really is how you walk with God's people is walking with God. Those are synonymous. So just hear that encouragement from us this morning. Uh, but if you want to understand who we are as a church and what we're about, somebody will greet you there. And if you don't get a sense in the next few minutes, the next little while that we spend together, um, and you want to know where we stand as a church, what we believe, for example, uh, that will be, uh, you can grab somebody at that table there. They'll have a little packet of information for you. Let's start with prayer this morning or continue our worship time in prayer. God, this morning, I want to pray for another church in our community in the spirit of what we've just talked about. I want to just lift up another bride um, in our community, the house of prayer. Lord, we uh, understand that they are looking for a pastor right now and just imagining the difficulties of, of trying to navigate um, shepherdless at the moment. Lord, we want to ask for um, those that you've raised up within their church to lead, that they will lead and that they will lead that church through this period of being pastorless. Lord, we pray that you would guide your uh, pastor to that context, to that church and that family, and that uh, your will would be done there, that they would have a clear picture of who you'd have uh, lead and shepherd that church, Lord. Uh, I do confess, too, I, I burden uh, that House of Prayer may catch on to what some of the other churches in our community are figuring out, that a, 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 pas a single pastor model is problematic, and having uh, a single pastor who's not there uh, just brings that into focus, Lord. We pray that maybe this might be a time where House of Prayer and maybe some other churches could catch the uh, the beauty of uh, plural leadership and plural pastors in a church to where um, they could brave seasons like this without missing a beat. Uh, Lord, we just want to pray for House of Prayer and just entrusting them to you, um, entrusting their, their season to you. Lord, also this morning, I want to pray for Caroline Cummings and Colton and their family. Uh, just so thankful for a good procedure or, um, that was done this week, Lord. We're thankful that she is, has gone through that well, Lord. We're entrusting her to you right now for her recovery. We pray for healing. We pray that the surgical procedure uh, removed all the cancer, that she is... Um, uh, we just ask you, Lord, that she'll have many, many, many more healthy years with us. And pray that you'd give us a view of how we can come alongside and minister to their family right now. We pray for the others that are among us that are ailing and, and recovering from all manner of surgical procedures and uh, cancer treatments and things like that, Lord. We just uh, uh, are burdened for folks uh, that, are that are working through all those issues right now. It's a heavy, heavy season for folks right now, and we want to entrust them to you. 
Lord, we pray that, that uh, you'll bless the time that we spend together in these next few minutes, that we will celebrate what you do with thieves. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Frank Abagnale, William, Frank William Abagnale Jr., is known for his history as a former confidence trickster, check forger, and imposter between the ages of 15 and 21. He's now in his 60s. But between the ages of 15 and 21, he assumed all manner of identities and in some ways became known as one of the most famous thieves in history. Some of those identities include an airline pilot, a physician, a U.S. Bureau of Prisons agent, and a lawyer. I was just uh, reading about him and reading some of the details about him. Here's his first con. It involved his father. His father was actually the victim. He gave Abigail a gasoline credit card and a truck to assist him in commuting to his part-time job. In order to get date money, though, 15-year-old Abigail devised a scheme in which he used the gasoline card to quote, buy tires, batteries, and other car-related items at gas stations, and then asked the attendants to give him cash in return for the products. Ultimately, his father was liable for a bill worth $3,400. And again, he was only 15 years old at the time. Some of the uh, identities that he assumed, uh, the, the airline pilot, he, he decided to impersonate pilots because he wanted to fly throughout the world for free. It's an interesting way to go about doing that. Pan Am estimated that between the ages of 16 and 18 that he flew more than a million miles on more than 250 flights and flew to 26 countries by deadheading. As a company pilot, he was also able to stay at hotels for free during this time. Everything from food to lodging was billed to the airline company. It's remarkable. As a physician... He actually assumed a role as a physician, again, also under the age of 21. He was able to fake his way through most of the duties by letting the interns handle the cases coming in during his late-night shift, setting broken, broken bones and other mundane tasks like that. He served also as an attorney, faked his um, uh, uh, graduation from Harvard. He managed to pass the bar in Louisiana after taking it three times. Uh, he served six months of prison time in France six months prison time in Sweden, and then four years of a 12-month sentence in the U.S. This guy has a crazy, crazy story. This was one account that I, I read. Uh, he shared this in a speech. He described an occasion when he noticed the location where airlines and car rental businesses, such as United Airlines and Hertz, would drop off their daily collections uh, of money in a zip-up bag and then deposit them into a drop box at the airport premises. Using a security guard disguise he bought at a local costume shop, he put a sign over the box saying, out of service, place deposits with the security guard on duty. And he collected money in that manner. Later he disclosed how he could not believe this idea actually worked, stating with some astonishment, how can a drop box be out of service? Man, I'm telling you, it's crazy. It's just wildly entertaining thinking what this guy got away with. He is currently a consultant and lecturer for the FBI Academy 
uh, and for their field offices. And he also runs Abagnale and Associates. It's a legitimate business online. I searched it out. Uh, it's a financial fraud consultancy company. The story, uh, his story is one of a rehabilitated thief. And it made for a really great movie. For those of you that have seen the movie, catch me if you can. You know some of his story. You know what I'm talking about. It made for a great story and a great movie. But I think the story that we're considering this morning is even better. I think it's even better. So let's see. We're going to climb into Ephesians chapter 4. And we'll come back to Frank Abagnale's story later on in the morning. I'm going to read verses 25 through 32. But we're going to be camping out on verse 28. And I'm going to be taking our time to unpack verse 28 to consider what it can tell us about the thief. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we're members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. It's a beautiful paragraph here that really is talking about what life together should be like what church life and Christian life together should look like. It's, a, it's in a beautiful place in, the, in the, the, the flow of the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters talk about what God has done for us in Christ. And the next three chapters talk about a fitting response. So here we are right in the middle of a paragraph with a list of beautiful ways to respond to what God has done for us in Christ. This morning we're going to consider verse 28. And I'll read it again as we unpack it in three parts, and then I have three application points. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This passage, like the ones surrounding it, follow a similar flow where there's a negative exhortation and then a positive exhortation and then a motivating clause. So that's the way we're just going to break down the morning. First, with the negative exhortation, let the thief no longer steal. Now, it's interesting that this is a present tense imperative suggesting this was an ongoing problem. Okay, I want to let that hit you for a minute. The thievery was an ongoing problem, enough so that it's mentioned in the book of Ephesians in a letter that's written to a church. Thievery was apparently an ongoing problem. Paul exhorts the Thessalonians in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians to work with honest hands, doing honest work. So apparently there's some issue going on in their context that involves theft. Now let's just consider a couple of the possibilities. I want to rule a few things out. First, we're probably not talking about professional thieves in the church. We would hope that maybe the vetting process as elders, pastors meet with folks and they join the church, that they would try and discern, is this person a pro thief or not? So we're, we think probably the guys that study uh, have devoted themselves to studying the ancient Roman context and have devoted themselves to studying uh, the book of Ephesians believe this is probably not professional thieves. 
We think also that it's probably not slaves stealing from their masters as slaves are addressed later in the book of Ephesians. Okay, so probably not slaves stealing from their masters. Probably also not Christians stealing from other Christians since we would suspect that, um, like the book of Corinthians, for example, that's dealing with folks that are, are, have, are, de- are having lawsuits between one another within the church that got some significant airtime. This doesn't get a lot of airtime. If it was Christians stealing from Christians, it would likely get, uh, be addressed thoroughly. It's more likely that there are two possibilities here, and here's the first. More likely, given the context in the ancient Roman Empire, that what we're talking about here are laborers who stole things they handled and shopkeepers who cheated their customers. That's the first possibility. Laborers who stole things they handled, maybe stock that they're distributing or delivering or whatever, and shopkeepers who cheated their customers. A few weeks ago, we were talking about the Ephesian context, and the Ephesian Christians likely having pretty seasoned, salty mouths. We would expect these guys had a a, a sordid past, even when they're one to Christ, that they might have to deal with pretty salty language. And we might also expect that they would have to deal with some practices that were probably pretty common, like skimming off the top. As you're working for somebody as a hired laborer, it might be easy to skim from the boss or to cheat the customers might be part and parcel to life in the Roman ancient Roman Empire. It's likely, in fact, that this was part of the context. The second possibility for the theft that we're talking about here that's being addressed is that this was a laborer who had to resort to thievery when they're out of work. There was no welfare in their context. There were no food stamps. There was no unemployment that someone could collect. If you didn't have a job, then you were left likely in providing for your family with the only option of theft. This one seems almost justifiable, doesn't it? Some of the dads in here that can imagine having the responsibility to provide for your family if you've lost your job and you've got no other option that in some way you would figure out how you're going to provide for your family. It might involve stealing something. Let's, let's just consider before we continue this morning. I don't imagine that thievery is a major issue for us. I, I think in the, the life of the church at Crosspoint, it's fitting that this is only given one passage. But I think it is something for us to consider that we're dealing with real-life problems. I don't think for a moment out of the realm of possibilities that you might be tempted to skim a little from stock on hand, thinking it won't be missed. Some of you work at large businesses and large corporations in contexts where you have access to lots of things and lots of stuff and maybe even money, where you might be tempted with that thought, it won't be missed. And besides, you might be fooled with the lie that times are hard. I mean, really. Compared to, them, to their context, compared to most of the world right now, times are not that hard. But we can convince ourselves, maybe when we have access to something, and we might, be, might have the thought that, man, I really want to stick it to the man. This is a great opportunity. This is the crazy story. I, I, I've shared with you before that I don't frequent Walmart much. I don't have anything against Walmart. I just, the whole, it's just so much for me to take in. It's just so much. I, I'm more compartmental in things. I, Matt works at Walmart. I'll be really careful and, and acknowledge that Walmart is a great business. And um, I just don't go there unless I have to. But I have to go there for kombucha tea. 
I got needs. I mean, kombucha tea is like seriously important to me, and it just helps me. It works for me. So I go in there, and I buy the organic kombucha tea. And if you ever see me in there, that's probably what I'm doing. And this, this is just so funny. I mean, I went in there yesterday to buy my tea for the week. I drink half of a thing a day, and it's just good. I like it in the morning. It's a ritual. And um, so I buy my tea, and I get home, and I'm thinking about the sermon. Yeah, typically on Saturday, most of my day is, is consumed with thoughts about the message, especially um, the day before, knowing that I'm coming to preach here the next morning. It's just not a matter of notes. It's preparing the heart and thinking through all these things. And I'm thinking about my tea, and I'm noticing the five bottles of tea that I have sitting there. And I don't know why I looked at the receipt. I, I don't ever look at receipts. And I looked at the receipt, and I was only charged for four bottles of kombucha tea. And I was like, all right, first of all, when does that ever happen? When are you ever not charged for something? Usually the, the accident is you're charged extra for more things that you didn't get. And I'm like, Lord, seriously, I'm preaching on theft tomorrow. And the, 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 the temptation for us to stick it to the man, and I have a great opportunity to stick it to the Walmart man. Joanna didn't charge me for one of my kombucha teas, so here's my receipt. I got to go back in there and make it right and let her know that I need to owe her, or that I owe her for another thing of kombucha tea. I would love to stick it to, the, to Mr. Mart, but I can't. I can't. It's not the right thing to do. Okay, so that's likely uh, what was going on there in the ancient Roman context. Laborers who stole things they handled. Uh, from, their art, from their bosses or the businesses they're working for, or shopkeepers who are cheating their customers, or it may have just been a laborer who's unemployed with no other option than, than theft. Uh, that, that seems like that's a, a justifiable problem, but the cool thing is if you pay attention for the rest of the morning, you're going to see a beautiful solution in the way this passage unfolds. Okay, so let's continue. The positive exhortation. That was the negative, let the thief no longer steal. Here's the positive exhortation. But rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. I love yet again where God calls us away from something. Without fail, he calls us to something. And he calls us without fail to something that's better always. And the thief's hands here, notice, they aren't to go from quick and nimble, lifting and taking, to idle. I want you to visualize this. The thief's hands are not to go from taking stuff from people to now hands in his pockets. But instead, he's called them away from thievery and called them to something better. The hands are being called now to honest and hard work. The word in the original language for labor is from the root word kopiao. You might think that sounds a little bit familiar. It is where we get the word copious. Some of you who take notes on Sunday mornings, these copious notes might be a good way to think about it. Laborious notes, meticulous notes, painstaking work is what we're talking about here and what they've been called to. It's what the thief has been called to. Copious, meticulous, painstaking, laborious, hard work. And the thief is to be working with his hands. The emphasis here is not that he's been called to some sort of manual labor, but that the hands that once lifted and took are now to work and to work hard. Now, I want to say something, and I want you to hear this. I want, I want to emphasize this, and we'll look at our motivating clause. The thief used to obtain things with little effort. 
Okay? Our guy, Frank Abagnale, demonstrated that beautifully. He used to obtain things with little effort. But now, as part of the new humanity, now this side of Christ, the thief is to acquire things with labor that requires hard work and a lot of effort. I'm going to say that again because I don't want you to miss that. The thief that used to obtain things with little effort, now as part of the new humanity, with his new identity, with his new righteous clothing that was one hard one for him in Christ, is to acquire things now with labor that requires a lot of effort. The reason I want to emphasize that is that's not part of the health and wealth story. That's not part of the health and wealth message. And I fear that that's not part of a lot of presentations of the gospel of what it means to to be converted to Christ. It could actually mean for you harder work. Man, that's something just to get your head around and just something to connect to. How do you conceptualize what it means to follow Christ? Do you have the thought that life's going to be easier? For the thief, it's not. It's going to mean hard, copious painstaking, laborious work when before he had a life of Riley, a life of ease. Now, let's consider the motivating clause. The negative uh, exhortation there was the thief should no longer steal. The positive is, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. And the motivating clause, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Man, it's a beautiful purpose clause here. It's a henna clause. You hear me talk about that sometimes in Greek. And in order that, he's to work with his own hands, in order that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The thief is no longer to steal, but to work hard with his very own hands so that he'll have something to share. Man, I want you just for a moment to consider the mind of the converted thief. Just think about this for a minute. Thieves, at their best, are typically thinking about themselves first and foremost. You can see that in Frank Abagnale. Whatever drives him, whatever compulsion, thinking of themselves first and foremost, and lastly, about those stolen from. The converted thief, though, goes to work steadily, copious kind of work, with honest hands, with others on his or her mind. Man, that's a transformation right there. Instead of thinking of the next heist, you can imagine the amount of time that thieves put in thinking through how they're going to steal. Anybody ever listed something on on Craigslist? You know what I'm talking about? The kind of effort that people go to to try and steal your money, where they send you these things, and then before long they're asking for money, and they give you fake PayPal uh, uh, receipts or whatever, uh, invoices, fake PayPal invoices, trying to get your money. Man, they're creative. The amount of thought and effort that that goes into thievery, now instead is thought, uh, is thinking and effort that goes into thinking about who you're going to bless. Man, that's a profound transformation. Instead of thinking of the next heist and how he can get a quick fix on what he or she wants, instead he's thinking of who he can bless and how. The thief is not building bigger barns. The thief is not collecting more stuff, but instead is earning an honest living so that he can distribute to anyone in need. Frank Abagnale's story, I think, is pretty amazing. It really is. And it's quite entertaining. Years of heists, 
years of jail time in three different countries, and now he runs a firm specializing in the identification of forgeries and embezzlements. That really is a great story. I mean, think about it. It's heartwarming, right, to think about how it's come full circle. But in some ways, think about this. It would be like a thief, a one-time thief, or a one-time game, game member, or a one-time outlaw becoming then a policeman and an investigator. It's a good story too, right? I mean, that warms the heart. I really enjoy that. And it makes for an entertaining movie, movie the thought of the rehabilitated thief. But man, here's the good news of the morning. A thief that's one to Christ, I think, makes an even better story. It may not make for a great movie. May not make for a great TV show, but in Christ, the thief who is converted to faith in Christ, who is trusting Christ as his Savior and Lord, that's wearing the new clothing, the righteous clothing that was hard won by our Savior, the thief is transformed to being a philanthropist. Think about that for a moment. Think about Frank Abagnale's story. Okay, he's been converted. He's been rehabilitated. I don't mean converted in a Christian sense. He's been rehabilitated in a worldly sense, and now he's helping to get after the bad guys, helping to nab the bad guys. That makes for a heartwarming story. But what makes for a soul-churning story, an awesome, I mean, deep, visceral sort of story, is the conversion of a thief, of not just no longer stealing, but now becoming a philanthropist, now being converted to not only thinking about himself as he did in the past, but now thinking of those in need. And I mentioned for you that it was a poetic design, a beautiful design, how it comes full circle. All it takes is for one thief to be converted in the church, in the church in Ephesus. Think about this for a moment. For one thief to be converted and one thief to say, okay, that's the old life. That's my old humanity. That's the old clothing I wore. But now I've put on this righteous clothing of Christ and I've become a new person. I've been united to this new humanity and I'm going to do what this says and I'm going to work hard with my hands, copious work, honest work with my hands. And I'm going to then consider anybody that has a need around me, consider now if he turns to that laborer that's been fired with left with the only option to steal for his family but who's trusting Christ can now have a need met by the former thief. Man, what a beautiful design. The whole thing comes full circle. The beauty is the unemployed laborer who would likely have to resort to theft in the Roman Empire who's outside of the church. In the church, finds his provision there. He doesn't need government welfare. He doesn't need to steal. He doesn't need food stamps because he's got the people of God and he's got people who were formerly thieves who are now doing good, honest work who are mindful of needs around them, who are meeting those needs. Man, that's beautiful. That's poetic. From the hands of the employed, they'll find provision, rather than from the hands of thievery. Man, the needs are met by the hardworking haves, who some of which likely had been thieves themselves. Man, that kind of full circle movement is what makes us different from the rest of the world. That's what makes us attractive to the world. I'll show you that here in a moment. I have three application points, and here's the first. We were made for work. We were made for work. Maybe behind the thought 
of, um, the, the, of stealing and getting rich quick is the false notion that work is somehow bad. Okay, just think about this for a moment. I wonder if that's why Catch Me If You Can and Frank Abagnale's story is so attractive and so entertaining. I wonder if something deep down inside of us is Frank Abagnale at heart and that we're trying to find a way around what the rest of the suckers out there are having to do to get by. Right? That's what makes it so entertaining, I think, is to see what the guy was able to pull off and the thought, man, I wish I could do that. I wish I could find a way to make a bunch of money without doing work. But here's the beauty, and here's what you need to think about. And I hope you embrace this. We were made for work. Let me show you. I don't want you to just take me face value. Just uh, turn to Genesis chapter 3. I want to show you this. I want to help you sort of contrast uh, what you might think about work with what the Word says about work. Okay? Genesis chapter 3. It's on page 3 of my Bible. It's right up front. You should be able to go right to it. It may not be page 3 of your Bible, but it's probably going to be close. We were made for work. Genesis chapter 3, the fall takes place. It's a, it's a pivotal, uh, pivotal chapter in our Bibles. It's one that uh, really is, um, um, should be a go-to chapter for you in making sense of lots of things. Uh, listen to what unfolds as a result of the fall. Uh, there's some consequences that are, are delved out first to the serpent, then to the woman, and then to Adam. I want you to listen to what God says to Adam as a result of the fall. It says, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Okay, just kind of think about that word pain. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Man, if you just really camp out on that for a little bit, that's pretty, pretty, pretty much a downer right there. I mean, think about it. if somebody presented you with a job description, you're going to interview for a new job, and this is their job description. Okay, man, you, I guess I got some work for you. You're going to go out here and you're going to work in the ground, but oh, by the way, it's cursed. And it's going to be really painful. And uh, there are going to be thorns and thistles that fight back. You know, and really, in essence, the job I've got for you is one step forward, two steps back. You know, you fix something that's going to end up being broken for long. And chances are it's going to be broken beyond repair. So you have to replace it. It's happened to my lawnmower. It's broken down in my garage right now. Anybody else dealing with stuff like this, the results of the fall? Man, anybody else in a job that works, that does work? You know what I'm talking about? One step forward, two steps back. You fix something, and then you turn around and it's broken again. And broken oftentimes beyond repair and you have to replace it. And you feel like your checking account looks the same way. One step forward, two steps back. You, get, get, you think you're getting ahead and then, oh man, something happens. You get a flat tire and you're behind. <laughs> man, this is the consequence of the fall. And which should be very familiar to us. Thorns and thistles. By, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken and you are dust. And to dust you shall return. So in other words, you just work until you die. It doesn't sound really good, the work description there, but I want you to make no mistake that work is not a result of the fall. The kind of work he describes here is a result of the fall, but not work itself. Look over the page 
to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man. Now, remember, just notice where this is in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2 is before Genesis chapter 3. Right? Just kind of notice that. It's before the fall. Okay? So 2 comes before 3. So let's look and see what it says. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to uh, oh, uh, work it and keep it. Man, maybe behind our desire to skim and to cut corners and to get rich quick and to, to enjoy so much the beauty of what Frank Abagnale was able to pull off is the thought that work is part of the fall and it's, it's bad. A work is good. You're made for it. You're made for it on both sides of the fall. Now, the nature of the work changes, but you were made for work. Ecclesiastes 2.24 says there is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and, and find enjoyment in his toil. Man, maybe the first step to making sense of how we can think like a redeemed thief, a former thief, okay? Think like the philanthropist and work like the philanthropist, the converted thief, is to recognize we should find enjoyment in our toil. Work is a good thing. You have a job? Great. You're blessed. You might hear me say that and go, oh, man, you don't know what kind of job I got. Let me ask you this. Do you have a job? Great. Be thankful for it and enjoy the toil. The verse goes on to say, this also I saw is from the hand of God. God has blessed you with that job, so be thankful for it. Start right there, and then maybe you won't be tempted with the mind of the thief. Okay, here's the second point. The first is we're made for work. Work is a good thing. Both sides of the fall, work is good. Okay, here's the second thing. Work to bless instead of working to hoard. Work to bless instead of working to hoard. You've got to recognize that this is unlike everyone else in the world, if you're going to think this way. Okay, realize what Paul's calling the Ephesian church to, what I'm calling you to this morning, is unlike everyone else in the world. Okay, people that we work with, people that we live by, people that we're related to, or people that anybody that we come in contact with, that's not that does not have the converted Christian mindset is likely thinking about making good money and earning a good living so that they can just buy more stuff. Sadly, a lot of the church thinks that way too. But man, the converted thief is called to something else. So if we're going to bracket a little bit, and the converted, converted thief is over here and he's called to be the philanthropist, then what are the rest of us called to? And we can learn something from the converted thief's mindset. Realize that we are called to bless instead of hoard. It's really unlike everyone else in the world to think this way. That you want to work hard and earn a living so that you can care for those who have needs around you. Imagine how the conversation would go down at L3. And just imagine the conversation. You've got a couple guys that are pocket protectors. Jeff Wade, pocket protector. Yeah, I'm looking at you. Okay. We've got uh, who else I could pick on? Think of another L3-er. John Hicks, he's got a pocket protector, and they're talking, talking to somebody else in there. Yes, I'm profiling, I, I admit. Pocket protector thing, I, I admit. Hey, man, why are, you work, why are you putting in all this overtime? Well, so we can identify 
needs around us and then be ready and poised to bless them. Man, you want to talk about an otherworldly conversation. You hear that conversation go down at L3 and you don't think that cubicle mates and the workmates that are around them and teammates aren't going, what? What's wrong with you, man? We work hard and we put in overtime so we can get more stuff. Man, what's wrong with you to be thinking that way about blessing those who have needs? But man, that's, not, that's something that we're called to as a church. Let me just give you a couple glimpses. Turn to Acts chapter 4. This and, and Ephesians 2 are the only other places I'm having you turn this morning. Acts chapter, I'm not sure what I said. Acts chapter 2 is where I want you to turn. I want you to just see a little glimpse of what the early church looked like. While you're turning there, I'm going to begin in verse 42, but I want you to pay real close attention once I get to verse 44. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is a sort of a description about the early church and what it was like. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Okay, now let me just, that's kind of otherworldly, right? Where they have all things in common. Man, I have an edger, you have an edger. I mean, I have a, a car, you have a car. I have a pool, right? Y'all have been to the McGraw pool. You know, you have a pool too. Now, within reason. (laughs) But if I have a pool, you have a pool. Man, we have all things in common. I love that. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any any had need. What an otherworldly people. They're selling their stuff. Okay, We know they're working to bless those who have needs. But they're selling stuff. So that they can bless other people that have needs. So that they would have everything in common. Man, that's pretty awesome. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Man, it's a pretty cool otherworldly thing. But here's what's really awesome and exciting about it. You keep reading it. It says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who who were being saved. Apparently, it's pretty attractive, too. So when Jeff and John are having that conversation at L3 and they're talking about working hard to make a living so that they can bless others that have a need and someone else in the cubicle next to them, I'm assuming you all are in cubicles. I know that's not true. The pocket protectors and cubicle things, I know I'm profiling. But you're having a conversation and someone else hears it and goes, man, that is pretty awesome. Weird, maybe, but awesome. And I want to check into that. I want to know more about that. It can become an attractant. When we're moving this way with one another, when we're sharing stuff instead of just hoarding, but we're working hard to bless one another, numbers were added to them day by day. Man, how about that for an evangelism plan? Where we're attentive to one another's needs? Where we're working hard so that we can bless one another? Man, that's pretty cool. Just a couple chapters later, a little bit later in the life of the early church, chapter 4, verse 34, says this, And there was not a needy person among them. Man, I suspect that there were converted thieves in there. There were likely converted thieves that now were left with the only option, and maybe unemployed thieves, left with the only option to go steal. But it says here, There was not a needy person among them, for as many who... as 
For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Man, let me tell you what's not part of the the early church and what should not be part of this church is people sitting around thinking, I got mine. I got mine. I work hard. God blessed my hard work. Look at all that I have. Man, I tell you what's part of the church mindset is God has blessed you as you've worked hard and toiled with your hands so that you can bless others. In order that, for the purpose of blessing others as they have needs. Man, that's attractive. That's otherworldly. It's how we show our love for each other, and it's how we prove that we are disciples of Christ. I want you to hear that. It's how we show our love for each other, and it's how we prove that we are Christ's disciples. John 13, 35 says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Man, work to bless instead of working to hoard. You'll be blessed as a result, trust me. More so than with that stuff that you're amassing. More so. So the first application point is we were made for work. Be thankful for it. Enjoy it. Embrace it. Work is not a product of the fall. It's on both sides of the fall. Secondly, work to bless instead of working to hoard. And third, enjoy God's work as you work. Enjoy God's work as you work. I'm going to share a passage with you. It's a familiar passage. It's in Ephesians. You can turn there or you can listen. It's probably better if you turn there because you can see it. But if you're one of those that really connects to things by listening, I just want to illustrate this for you in this one verse, in this one passage. Not one verse, but one passage. Enjoying God's work as you work. I want to connect the dots for you. Because okay, if the dots aren't connected, it could be the difference between you just being a legalist and just doing some stuff uh, without worship fueling you. Are you actually worshiping as you work and bless? Okay, listen to this passage and how it unfolds. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus, same book that we've been in. He's talking to converted thieves. Okay. Converted outlaws. Converted abusers. Converted addicts, converted idolaters. He's talking to formerly lost Gentiles who are now found. And listen to what he says. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now working the sons of disobedience. You were dead in that thievery. You were dead in that sin that you were enslaved to. And oh, by the way, just so you know, it wasn't just a Gentile thing. It's also a Jewish problem. Paul says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Everyone is broken. Everyone has some sin issue and some um, enslavement to sin. But in verse 4, my two favorite words in the Bible, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were thieves, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. He, and by grace you've been saved. He raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward a bunch of thieves in Christ Jesus. Listen to what he says next. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not, a result, not as a, a result of works, so that no man may boast. Now here's where works fit in. Here's where blessing others as you've been blessed fits in. For we are his workmanship, those former thieves, those former addicts, those former abusers, those former idolaters. We are now his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. What I'm talking about this morning is not just a great idea that maybe you can just kind of put onto your Christianity. It's what you were made for. It's what you were saved for. You were created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I want you to be fueled by worship as you work hard with your hands to make an honest living, to bless others. Realize that he hasn't just saved us from enslavement to sin. It would be an awesome story if he was so great that he took uh, hands that once lifted and took and made them idle to where they didn't steal anymore. It'd be pretty cool. But man, he does a whole lot more than that. He didn't just save us from enslavement to sin. He freed us to something better, the good works prepared in advance for us to walk in. Man, we're talking about a God that goes above and beyond, so we're talking about a people that should as well. And we should be fueled by worship as we go about it, realizing this. He doesn't just pay for your sins. He then seats you in heavenly places with the victor. It would be pretty awesome if he paid for your sins, but he goes above and beyond, and he seats you in heavenly places with the victor. Man, enjoy a God that just doesn't call us away from some things, but in light of our identity, now calls us to great things in him. He doesn't call us away from some things in light of our identity now in him. He, he calls us to many wonderful things. He hasn't just called you to stay away from that one tree Okay, and you can walk around moping because, oh, man, I really sure wish I could steal something. I sure wish I could go to that one tree. Man, turn around you and look at this whole garden full of blessing that you have in now working hard to bless one another. Man, what I'm talking about here is worship-fueled perspective, a worship-fueled lens on working hard so that you can bless others. What I'm talking about is a whole new paradigm of viewing the issue of obedience, a whole new way of understanding obedience. The call and charge not to eat from this one tree is coupled with a charge to eat from all these others around you. A garden full of blessing. That's the spirit of this morning. Is don't work to hoard. Instead, turn around and look at this garden full of blessing behind you where you can work hard to bless others. And you can take and eat from every tree. Man, that changes the conversation about obedience. 
what I'm encouraging you with this morning is calling you to worship-fueled work, enjoying the blessings He's planned for you as you walk in obedience. We're going to take the supper this morning uh, next, and I'd like to read a passage from Luke chapter 22. And you can listen to this, but I want you to think for a moment before I read it. I want you to think about who's around the table. And I want you to think about who, what, what other characters come into the story after the supper. Okay, you know the supper was during the week of his arrest and crucifixion. Okay, those all, all happen around the same time frame. So think for a moment around who's around the table taking the supper. And who else comes into the storyline as the story progresses? And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. Think about who the yourselves are. If you've read the Gospels, you know we're talking about Former fishermen, former tax collectors. Can we grab that one? Okay, man, we're talking about in the ancient context, folks who would be pretty good at skimming and pretty good at cheating their customers and pretty good at justifying both. We're talking about around this Lord's table, this first Lord's Supper, we're talking about some thieves. Converted thieves. He says, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It's apparent if you really consider the context and consider who's around the table that God loves thieves. God loves thieves. They're at the table here. Jesus shares with them while they're yet sinners. God will, uh, in, in a few moments here, in a few hours, Jesus himself will replace a thief named Barabbas. And then even a few moments later, Jesus will save a nameless thief on the cross. And it's apparent that God saves liars, cheats, abusers, murderers, addicts. He's in the business of saving and transforming people for his own glory. And today we celebrate that he saves and transforms thieves and makes them philanthropists, worship-fueled philanthropists. He saves them not just to deliver them from sin, but to deliver them for blessing. Let's distribute the elements.
I can't imagine a more fitting song. <laughs> I had like all kind of stuff, good stuff to say, but we just sang it. Let's enjoy the Lord, enjoy our Savior, and take and eat. Thankful that he paid it all. Let's take and drink. Let's continue in worship and song.
So fitting. Thank you, worship team. Grateful for that. I want to introduce a uh, family for membership. Uh, before I do that, though, or not a family, a, a couple that are dating. I want to push things ahead. You know, they're like sitting there going, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Y'all give me just a second. I'll clean that up. Um, I hope that what you heard this morning uh, was gospel as much as you heard an, a call to... Um, a call away from hoarding, a call away from, you know, stuff collecting and getting rich quick kind of thinking that we can all be guilty of and work is bad kind of thinking. I hope you've heard also a call to trust Christ because, man, I tell you, if you separate the two things, it's the difference between worship and just being a nice lost person. I mean, everything about this morning was about trusting Christ who's done the work for us so that then we can respond by doing hard work. We're freed from enslavement to things like addiction and sin and, and stealing and uh, abusing and idolatry of every sort and hoarding. We're, we've, been deli- we've been liberated from that. And we've actually been liberated not just away from that, but we've been liberated for something good. And, man, I hope that you've heard a real gospel connection there. Gospel means good news. Some of you might be hearing that for the first time or you've visited with us some and you're like, man, I, I want to understand this. What, what I'm calling you to today, what I hope that you hear every Sunday in some way and what I think you will hear if you sit down with a life group shepherd or if you sit down with a deacon or if you sit down with a family that invited you, I hope you'll hear these words. Your only hope is to trust in Christ and Him alone. You haven't been called to somehow some muster this new stuff this morning. I guess I need to go muster not hoarding anymore. I need to go muster being, you know, open-handed, big-handed, or big-hearted and open-handed. No, you've been called to trust Christ. Enjoy Christ. Think on Christ. Dwell on Him. It's, it is a, it is, we are one-hit, no, we, we play one note here. We're one-hit wonder, and it's preaching Christ. That's all we do. If you heard anything separate from that this morning... I'm taking you there now. The supper, hopefully, you connected to it. But we're connecting to his work. We're the ultimate have, bless the ultimate needy, which is us. I hope you heard that this morning. If you're on, like, well, I want to understand what it means to follow Christ, please reach out to me or Scott or Brad or any of the life group shepherds or any of the deacons or the people that invited you or maybe the people that are just sitting next to you if nobody invited you. You don't have to go to an expert <laughs> like there is such thing. Really? Man, I want to encourage you. Trust Christ.